1: The New Statesman.
0: Hi, I'm Rachel.
2: I'm Freddie. I'm Andrew.
0: And on today's New Statesman podcast, we're discussing the Labour Party's plans for reform of the House of Lords and how Rishi Sunak is coping after another two U-turns on policy. I just want to mention at the, the start of the podcast, um, we're recording at Smith Square, and there's a little bit of construction work going on in the background. But Andrew assures me nothing's going to fall down just yet.
2: Nothing's <laughs> going to fall down just yet. We should say we're right beside the Houses of Parliament. This whole area is on a great big soggy bog, so buildings <laughs> could fall down. This building that they're doing now is a vast, edward, there's lots of big Edwardian buildings around Westminster, so this is one. And they've taken everything behind the facade out and they're going to take the facade away as well, then build a new building and then put the facade back on again so you won't be able to tell. It'll take three years and it's going to be extremely noisy.
0: Okie doke. So the accusation thrown at Keir Starmer is that Labour doesn't have any ideas, doesn't have any policy, but um, this week we've seen two big reports. One's the Gordon Brown's Commission on the Future of the UK, the other is um, new policy today on startups and helping businesses. Hmm. So we'll come on to the House of Lords reform, which has had the most debate of this um, week a little bit later on. But the proposals from um, Gordon Brown includes, you know, devolving new powers to housing, infrastructure, employment to mayors and, and local authorities. Do you think they're radical enough proposals?
2: I certainly think they're radical enough, Rachel. It is true that there are holes in them and lots of question marks and lots of vague areas. Exactly what is devolved to whom, which towns and which cities have directly elected mayors across Scotland, as well as England, which don't and why. Lots and lots of issues like that. And it's still unclear. I don't think there is going to be a sort of regional English um, system, and I hope there isn't, of assemblies. But all those kinds of things are unclear. So lots and lots of questions. But is it radical enough in terms of being the centre-left or Gordon Brown's response to Boris Johnson's levelling up to say that you can't level up unless you also pass real power down, then I think it is radical and it is good. Frankly, there's a lot in it that Michael Goe would approve of, but then he's the radical on the Tory side on these measures.
0: Freddie, what do you reckon?
3: Yeah, no, I think we got to remember that it was a very vague, quite ambiguous set of principles, and whether they're going to be able to implement on that or not depends whether they get a majority in the next general election. I think Andrew's right, it's a direction, it's where they want to go. But I wrote about this on Tuesday and I basically said, The key thing for them is that devolution equals economic growth. I mean, this is part of their broader economic strategy. We got to remember back in July, Keir Starmer set out his growth picture in Liverpool and reports we've seen over the summer and this week link into that. So you devolve power, you give communities more say about who comes into the area, where the money goes, and hopefully you stimulate a little bit of growth. We also saw that in the report today on skills and Startups. They said that they're going to try and funnel more money into small startups. Again, it's a it's a policy with a focus on growth, and that's the main theme here.
2: I agree. In many ways, they're completely boxed in by the wider picture. There is not going to be any scope for very large extra public spending if Labour win the next election. And Keir Starmer, by ruling out any involvement in the single market uh, or free movement, means there's not going to be a trading growth area there as well. So, growth through trade is limited, growth through in public investment is limited, so what's left? And what's left is devolution and the smaller scale ideas. I mean there is no doubt that there is a massive, massive growth problem. Liz Truss was right about that, maybe not about many other things, but she was right about the fact that there was a big growth problem. One other little factoid to throw onto the table, which absolutely astonished me, is a research out this week showing that one in ten young people, which means 18 to 24-year-olds in this case, 1 in 10 never intend or expect to enter the labour market in their lives. We have a really, really big labour market problem, a problem of underpay and poverty comes from low growth and low productivity and that is labour's great challenge if they win power.
0: Yeah, I suppose the sort of flip side to that is that you could end up with it a bit of a postcode lottery kind of system if you have different bodies dealing with their own infrastructure, dealing with their own yeah. e- employment, what have you. So That's this kind of flip side to it.
2: If we forget about America and look at continental Europe, there's no really successful European country that doesn't have very strong city and regional layers of government. The Germans do, the French do, the effective bits of the Italian state do as well. And so I think there are lessons there for us to learn.
0: Didn't Gordon Brown is sort of the right voice for reform?
2: Well, I think he's, he's the only voice. not He's not the only voice, but it's really interesting. Now that there's sort a of sniff of power in the air, all the old dogs from the 1990s and 2000s are coming back into the game, and Tony Blair's got his institute, I think Gordon has done some really hard, solid work. He is quite didactic. He doesn't brook much argument for people around him, but... He is a voice that the centre-left of the Labour Party as well as the the centre and right of the Labour Party still to a certain extent respects in a way they don't respect Tony Blair. Mm. And so I think it was quite a shrewd choice to go to him. Mm.
3: I think it's interesting because we are seeing these new Labour figures pop up among Starmer's top team over the past few months and they're coming up with reports and suggestions. Blair's made no secret of advising Starmer, same with Brown and others. So the question there is how similar is Starmer's Labour going to be to New Labour. I mean, the, with the key slogan in Brown's report was Old Britain to New Britain. That must have been intentional, I would have thought. So I think you're going to see some divergence. You've seen, I think, advocacy for a more interventionist state. You wrote about that last week, mm-hmm. Andrew. I think you saw that in the report, but you also saw that in today's report, you know, this seeing the state as partnering with business to try and bring about economic growth. You also saw it with immigration. They're no longer going to say, OK, you can have as many immigrants coming as you like to fund jobs and skill gaps and these sorts of things. We need businesses Mm. to step up, train people, and well as
2: Absolutely.
0: How do we think Keir Starmer's doing as leader at this point? There's an easy answer to that question, given how far ahead Labour is in the polls, but how how do you think?
2: Well enough at the new statesman, we're going to be week after week after week complaining about this or that, wanting to go further there, or criticising this thing, of course. But yes, looking at the polls well enough. I think over the last few weeks, He hasn't done terribly well in Prime Minister's questions against Rishi Sunak to the extent that that matters. And maybe it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. at all. But Sunak is proving a wilier and harder opponent, perhaps, than Keir Starmer expected. I thought he didn't really land the blows. He should have landed, for instance, on housing policy this week. A really big area for Labour. And again, an area where we don't yet see a sort of solid and coherent policy.
3: I would think I would disagree with that a little bit. I've been... Quite critical of Stalin's performances in PMQs in the past, and I think he's doing quite a good job nowadays, in part because Sunak is in such a weak position. He doesn't have to do that much to draw out where Sunak and the government are falling down. He can simply point at Sunak, point at his back benches, and he highlights the divisions within the party.
2: But the weak, weak, weak. He the can weak, say. weak that that, that may cut through, it's true. I just think they are more evenly matched than we've yeah. seen. Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition for some time. I mean, it's a very interesting thing to watch for those who are obsessive about the it. The interesting
3: but. thing is that we've moved away from style in PMQs. I remember we used to almost have to sketch PMQs because the politics was the style and now ideology, policy has returned and that makes it much more interesting. It makes it harder to say, okay, this person clearly won the wittier line or the quick takedown here or there. It's about the ideas and the political context when they both stand up and when they leave, it's about the key messages that come through. And I think on that
0: framing, Stam is a decent job. So we've mentioned Rishi Sunak, so we'll move on to the Conservatives. So we've got this last week, another two U-turns, one on onshore wind and the other on making housing targets for councils mandatory. He's struggling with his backbenchers a great deal, Rishi Sunak, isn't he? Surely his, his, his new year resolution has to be no more
2: U-turns. <laughs> No more U-turns, but it's very, very hard for him, because it's not just one group of backbenchers he's struggling with. There are lots of sort of competing factions on the Tory backbenches, And as more and more of them think, you know what, I'm not going to win my seat at the next election, or if I do, I've got a miserable five years or more as an opposition backbencher, and therefore I'm getting out, authority starts to crumble. You know, it's beginning to crumble and splinter all over the place, and that's his biggest problem. I think, by the way, the U-turn over housing is an immense story Mm. and a really, really bad one for the Conservatives. 300,000 houses every year we were promised in the 2019 manifesto. This U-turn, this lack of central control, means there is absolutely no chance of that happening Mm. and Tory nimbyism has trumped any sort of bigger ambitions for the country. I think it's incredibly bad news for younger voters. Tories are already losing lots of younger voters and I think, I mean, it's almost an election-losing U-turn, in my view.
0: Pushing up house prices and keeping people Absolute. off the housing market. How do you think what she's Sunak's doing?
2: I th- yeah, he's
3: struggling massively. I mean, if you speak to Tory MPs at the moment, there's this big sense of despair, anguish. They constantly come out with gallows humour about the, their futures and joking about the strength of the party. So that's where they are mentally. And what does that mean? That means that Sunak can't actually push through an agenda. He can't create a policy platform which he can go to the electorate in two years' time and say, look, I came in two years ago and this is what I've achieved. I mean, as you said, Andrew, he hasn't got that strength to do that or the policy. So what is he going to say to them? Just (laughs) picking
2: up what Freddie said, I think I could say that I was stopped yesterday in the Commons by a member of Rishi Sunak's government, senior minister, uh, who said, I read your piece in The New Statesman. You're very angry with the Conservatives and our record quite right <laughs> i thought well, okay
0: it's, it's one thing he can do to sort of turn it around now
2: he just has to hunker down and wait i think i mean as we've said before mm. uh, there's another two years before there has to be an election that is a very very long time so many things can change so much might turn up they're already selling government debt more effectively than we perhaps expected by now and you know the, the impact of a year and a bit of relatively calm, relatively competent-looking government, I'm crossing my fingers and toes, I don't think it's going to happen, but if that happened, you know, it could turn things round. In a relatively small period of time, the Labour lead in the polls has come down from around 30 to around 20. These things move fast.
0: To, to around 20, though, they're still behind by some margin. I mean, do you agree? Do you think that just a year of kind of quiet government and being seen as vaguely reliable?
3: thats The problem isn't it this is the most compelling thing we can try and muster at the moment i mean andrew you had your your great piece a few weeks ago where you set out the road to victory for them with the huge caveats of this is probably not going to happen but if they say to the electorate look we made the recession slightly shallower we stabilized the economy we got us through the war in ukraine we got us through covid then maybe there's a narrative there but if cnac can't come up with his own agenda and that relates to what we were Mm. saying earlier then he's really going to struggle
0: Hi, it's Sanoosh here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back.
3: If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description.
0: Now it's time for a section we like to call.
2: You ask, ask us.
0: We've got a great question this week, which comes from one of our listeners. Unfortunately, it didn't leave their name, and it's pretty straightforward. Should the House of Lords be abolished? And I know both of you have very strong opinions on this. So
2: and not who... the same of.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so who would like to have the opening salvo?
2: I am thoroughly in favour of abolishing the House of Lords. I would like to see it replaced with a second chamber. I think a unicameral legislature is not an ideal thing, so I would like a second chamber to do more than a bit of revision of legislation, important though that is, but also to establish stronger links with the country outside London. And I think this new body, whether we call it a Senate or a, a, an Assembly of the Regents and Nations, whatever name it has, I think could very well be outside London, and that would be very important. I like the fact that in these proposals we're going from 850 peers to around 200 new members. There is of course always a danger of one elected or selected chamber competing with another one and therefore from my own point of view I'd very much like to see this done on the basis of a list system giving the party machines the ability to select who goes in there and I'd also like there to be Um, a good percentage, perhaps 10 or 15 percent, of cross-party or non-party and some commission to appoint them.
3: I think it's very interesting when you talk about the House of Lords, you've got to remember that we're talking about the system itself. People often focus completely on whether the House of Lords is democratic or not, but what the question is, is the system democratic? And key to that and key to ensuring that democracy prevails within our system is the supremacy of the House of Commons. They're the ones are elected, they're the ones who have manifestos, and they need to get it through Parliament. That's why you'd always get the Lords backing down, or particularly on issues that have been in the government's manifesto. So that's, that's just something to remember. On the proposals themselves in the Gordon Brown report, they're very interesting. And given what we just said about remembering how the system works as a whole, it's clear that they're trying to ensure the second chamber does more functions than purely increase the democracy within the system. Brown talks about introducing social rights, economic rights and environmental rights and he sees the second chamber as the conduit for protecting those rights and ensuring Mm. that the House of Commons can't impinge on them. That's interesting because... In most of the report, they speak about maintaining the supremacy of the House of Commons. But as soon as you get into these positive rights, you might call them these rights that give you the right to healthcare, rights to economic equality around the country, you start getting into the bread and butter of politics and day to day policy. Uh, And when that happens, I would worry that you may risk the supremacy of the House of Commons, which brings our system into a little bit more
0: question. Freddie's got a really good point there, hasn't he? I mean, if, if both chambers are elected, they're in competition, in a
2: way. Which is why I would like to see one done on the list system. Mm. Now, you might say, well, of course, that's more proportional, so it's more legitimate. Underlying all of this, Brown suggests some kind of basic constitutional law which limits in law mm. what the second chamber can do, and I would approve of that. That does take us down the road towards a written constitution, a different way of doing things. I guess my fundamental position is that virtually all my lifetime and be- beyond. We've had a system which has a winner-takes-all electoral system, a sort of parliamentary supremacy or a single-chamber supremacy, and atop of that an extraordinary system of very, very concentrated centralised number 10 power. So a centralised system on top of a winner-takes-all centralised system. And my basic contention is if you look at our performance as a country since the Second World War, that hasn't served us very well. And therefore, I guess I think having, you know, ambled around this area for a long time, we're in SW1 now, I think the system needs a massive kick up the backside and this could be it.
0: I think kind of point that I think's worth making at this, at this stage is what if nobody really engages with in- electing a second chamber? You know, I know they've said they'll put the elections on a, a sort of different cycle, but still, I mean, are people really going to get out and vote for them and does that is, might that be a problem?
3: I think they will, you naturally get a lower turnout than you would for the House of Commons, as you said, particularly if it's on a a different cycle. I mean, it takes quite a while for these things to enter the public consciousness, but it would have much debate in the lead-up to it, which would obviously engage people. But I think you've got onto an interesting question there, is at the moment the Labour won't have cross-party support for these reforms. And therefore, it's very unlikely they're actually going to come about unless they get hundred seat majority let's say the le- next election. Given the 2019 result that is a, a very tricky prospect. I mean you've got to remember during the noughties we had so much debate about House of Lords reform indicative votes about whether it should be partially elected you know, fully elected appointed etc etc. There's lots of debates to be had mm-hmm. and I think actually implementing these reforms would be very tricky and whether Labour wants to occupy their whole first term with constitutional debate is another question.
2: Indeed. So, picking up on the, the implementation question, which is a really important one, a couple of things. If you, I think the last time that there were these indicative votes was around 2013.
3: Yeah, and no, there was some earlier as yeah. so, well, yeah.
2: And then the proposal, I think, for sort of 80% elected, 20% appointed, came quite close to winning in the Commons. The votes in the Commons weren't that hostile. So, I think the idea that this could not be voted through in the next Parliament is not right. I think the mood of the country has changed. I think the series of scandals and the kind of people Michel Mohn, Lord Lebedeff, appointed to the Second Chamber has changed the public mood and therefore the atmosphere, even in the Commons about this, is a bit different than it was. Mm. But of course, if it became the kind of thing that totally bogged down a future Labour government and allowed it not to do much elsewhere, that would be very, very unfortunate. I think with a decent majority, an effective reforming government has to be able to do more than one thing at a time. And I think Gordon Brown's basic point, which is that this is how you achieve economic reform. Mm -hmm. Economic reform, and we should stop calling it constitutional reform, because that's a very boring word. (laughs) It's terrible. (laughs) And political reform can and should go together. And in that case, this could be quite central to the programme. That question, where's Keir Starmer's big idea? This Mm -hmm. could yet be it.
0: In the report, the House of Lords is described as indefensible. Mm. Do you think there's a, Could you defend it, the House of Lords, as it's done?
2: I
3: think you could if you reform it. You know, we've seen so many scandals over the past decade, so much controversy about the appointments process, and I agree, you know, lots of people do see it as the retirement home for the British establishment. So, yeah, in that, in its current form, I'm not sure it is defensible, but whether you jump from where we are today to a completely elected second chamber is a completely different debate.
0: If there was a defence for it, it's that often the people who are appointed to go in there will have very very particular skills and will have had a, a career doing something in a particular profession that might be useful in a revising chamber.
2: And often they don't. <laughs> often they're there because they bunged a large amount of money to number 10 at the right time, or because they're a friend of a friend, or because they were a slightly irritating bag carrier who needs to be bought off when a minister's retiring and so on. No, you can play it, but there are lots, to be serious about it, there are lots of really, really good people in the House of Lords. There are lots of experienced consultant doctors who can talk about medicine. There are very, very experienced lawyers, of course, you'd expect that. But really good people, business people as well. But I think any model of an alternative can bring in that wide variety without all these ridiculous hereditary characters hanging around and without the, frankly, borderline corrupt people that have been, been pushed into the House of Lords as well.
0: Um, OK, thank you both.
2: Thank you, Rachel. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Weirbeth, as my colleagues Freddie Hayward and Andrew Marr. We're produced by May Robson. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to leave us a nice review and to subscribe.